Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. The Clock That Went Backward by Edward Page, Mitch- uh, Edward Page Mitchell. This is first published in the New York Sun, Sunday, September 18th, 1881. I found out about this one by reading more about Edward Page Mitchell after we did our show on a story of his set in a museum uh, called The Man Without a Body, which was a very humorous uh, story about a basically invention of a teleporter using essentially telephone technology. Uh, you can transport yourself from your apartment to some other part of town just by making a call. Um, and, uh, of course, the inventor did something wrong and didn't charge the battery fully <laughs> and uh, ended up as only a head. Um, that's one way that's to get ahead. when your battery doesn't have enough decapitants. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, Sorry. no. Oh, no. Um <laughs> So I I feel like I was ripped off as a younger kid than I am today, <laughs> closing in on 50 years old. I feel like I was ripped off because nobody told me about Edward Page Mitchell. And uh, just based on these two stories, I'm thinking that was a huge, huge gap. Um, it's kind of justifiable um, in that I think most people didn't know about him until the 70s. There's basically no publication of this between the time it came out in 1881 and I think like 1973. It just didn't Can exist. I just, just say the PDF that that is available on our website says that it's 1882, and you've shown me a, a picture, a scan of the original. I, I know that you're right; it's 1881, but I think just in case our listeners want to take the pleasure of reading this over for themselves, they should know that we're saying 1881, even though the PDF says 1882. It's, uh, I I can confirm that again, one moment. Uh, The clock that went backwards. Alright, so I'm clicking on the original. We actually retyped the whole thing. Um, and it is from 1881. So uh, that 1882 is probably just a typo on our part that has since been corrected. Because the one I'm holding is the uh, multiple page version. Um, uh-huh. Carefully retyped by me and one of my students who went through every line of the story and found multiple things that have been changed over the years. Like the words goodbye being one collapsed into one word instead of good dash by and that sort of thing. But even whole uh, phrases are missing from m- most versions online. It's it's fairly hard to read. In the original newspaper, it says, The Sun, Sunday, September 18th, 1881. The Sun is the New York Sun. It doesn't say that on the paper. But we have carefully, carefully, carefully gone through every line because one little word change can make a huge difference. It's, Absolutely. It's, it's like... Um, and especially in in this story, I'm immensely impressed with what Edward Page Mitchell has done in what is essentially like a throwaway story. He published it in his own newspaper without a byline. It doesn't say who, who wrote it in the newspaper. 
later uh, scholars have figured this out, that it was Edward Page Mitchell. But what's so extraordinary is that this is a time travel story uh, of the kind we think of like in, say, uh, Back to the Future, where you go back in time and you make a change and that change has a rippling effect into the future or, in a more Heinleinian way, um, that change was absolutely necessary for anything to have come into existence as it has. And that is quite a bit different from the later author, H.G. Wells, who has a time travel story where we go only into the future, never into the past. And uh, he has set it up brilliantly here. Everything in this story leads carefully, carefully, carefully to its ending. I agree. I, I Just to remind everybody of the dates, um, most people think of the time machine as starting with Wells's publication, and the, the version of the time machine that we read um, is published in 1895. But Tom Clarison, an SF scholar now deceased, um, was able to unearth um, earlier versions of this. And it turns out that Wells published something serially in the newspaper called the Chronic Argonauts in 1888 that has the fundamental ideas of a time machine already. Um, But he rewrote it a number of times until it was an overnight success (laughs) seven years later. So this 1881 publication by Edward Page Mitchell um, in a newspaper is uh, much closer to the 1888 date that Wells uh, gives us originally. Not a very popular story when it came out in its first form, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's much changed. But I think you are absolutely right in seeing that um, what we have here is something going into the past to change the present. Um, That's something that that Wells didn't uh, suggest. And it's a a marvelous idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I like this. I, I would say, if I can go into the past, uh, <laughs> let 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 the present change the past. I think perhaps more people know about um, Edward Page Mitchell than one thinks, because uh, the one involved here is you and me, mm-hmm. and and we're ones who are concerned with with fiction and poetry and narrative film but in fact most of what mitchell did although he wrote prolifically um he's best known for being the editor of the new york sun Mm -hmm. as you say his own magazine his own newspaper that was a leading newspaper Mm -hmm. of the day and he had an enormous impact behind the scenes i mention that because this story is about someone who has an immense impact behind the scenes mm-hmm. and in fact there, you know a person like that uh, who who has an influential position I was talking about a similar person uh, named Bernard McFadden who was a, a prolific editor of magazines in uh, the early 20th century in the United States. This this is a man who wanted to have a profound impact on the United States and kind of did. You know, he interviewed, interviewed Mussolini. He argued against vaccines. He did all sorts of things that were 
heavily trying to influence government policy and uh, human behavior. He he had a magazine called Physical Culture that was pushing, pushing, pushing uh, eugenics and healthful activity and uh, sort of... Uh, he, he started his own religion called... Um, uh, I want to say cosmetarianism, but basically it was just pumping iron. He, he's, I blame him for physical education classes, as in PE classes, being as prominent as they are in our public school system. But you wouldn't know that based on his name, Bernard McFadden. This guy, Edward Page Mitchell, he shows up in a movie. Uh, there's an actor playing him in the 1991 movie. Ed Asner plays him. Uh, in a TV movie called Yes, Virginia, There Is a Santa Claus, based on Edward, Page's, Edward Page Mitchell's article questioning, is there a Santa Claus? Which he wrote and published in his own newspaper. This is an immensely influential newspaper, but the thing about a newspaper is it is so ephemeral. If If it doesn't get picked up by somebody else and, you know, filed away in a drawer, it just... It seems to go away, and yet it, it is a ghost that influenced the culture. I don't think that H.G. Wells read this story and said, Aha! Time travel, that's a great idea. Right? <laughs> I think you're absolutely right, because had he done it, knowing how Wells's mind works, having read so much of him from so many periods of his own life, Wells's own life, he would not have let this idea of going to the past to influence the present disappear. Right. He, he would have had it there, at least in speculation. So I think you're quite right that Wells didn't read this. But people were concerned with time travel. After all, uh, looking backward um, came out in the same period, mm-hmm. in the 1880s. Absolutely. And that's perhaps the most influential utopian story in the history of North America. Um, it almost got a president elected in the United States. Uh, and, yeah. But you're doing the right job of archaeology, my friend. Um, People won't know about the ephemera unless someone else brings it forward, and that's what you've done. Thank you for asking us to read it. Well, I'm, I'm, I hope everybody does go to the website and downloads it and prints it up and reads it and enjoys it with someone, uh, a friend perhaps. Um, and uh, until they do so, let's intrigue them by having you tell the listener what they're in store for. In a way, it's a simple story. The clock that went backward is about the clock that went backward in the sense that the invention of this technology becomes crucial in the history of the characters in the story. But one could read this as about the characters. I think not. Mm -hmm. I think it's about the relationship of people to technology. The story can be told simply, but Mitchell's writing is, is really lovely and rich, and so I do recommend that people don't rely on a precy. It begins, a row of Lombardy poplars stood in front of my great-aunt Gertrude's house on the bank of the Sheepscot River. Lombardy um, is an, an area of Italy. Um, the poplars are uh, trees that uh, give us uh, a certain uh, look. 
the look is one that is associated with the mythological character Daphne. The great aunt Gertrude is uh, described as physically like Daphne. Sheepscot River is a real river in Maine. Mm -hmm. uh, Mitchell is giving us real stuff from the beginning, stuff that crosses from the natural to the geographical to the uh, historical to the mythological, all in the very beginning. In personal appearance, my aunt was surprisingly like one of those trees, and this gets carried on throughout. Uh, the word laurel is used for them, and in fact, in some sense, a laurel comes to us mythologically as the, uh, the, the leaves that make the, the wreath that crowns a champion, and Gertrude is a spear warrior, uh, the German name for a, a, a female heroine. This is the great aunt Gertrude. The story has to do with the periodic visits that our narrator has with his cousin Harry to visit great aunt Gertrude, who is uh, somewhat eccentric, but really quite lovely. Uh, she has no children of her own, and she insists, it seems, on telling stories about her own past. Her great-great-grandmother is where the stories begin, who lived 1599 to 1642, we're told. And we get the dates for each of her female progenitors. Um, and if you pay close attention, you'll realize that each of the women in this genealogy was born at least 40 years after the birth of the previous one. Mm -hmm. Now, starting in the 16th century, women having children at that age, that's kind of odd, especially if they're firstborn children. In fact, it's sort of hard to believe. And reading this now, not in 1881, but in the 21st century, it's not at all hard for us to instantly come to the notion that ah, she's lived all this time. Mm -hmm. She's just making it up. As she gets older, she has to adopt a new identity so that people won't wonder who is that person. So Great Aunt Gertrude has been alive since 1599. What do we know about this Great Aunt Gertrude? Well, it turns out that she has this clock, a tall Dutch clock, which was made by a fellow named Jan Lipperdam mm -hmm. um, in 1572. And you can see the date right on the clock and his signature on the clock. And the clock is described, it's a, a, a falling weight clock, not a pendulum clock, but it's a big grandfather's clock, and it's stuck at a quarter of three. Um, we get to see an odd relationship with this clock. The boys are interested in it, but Aunt, Great Aunt Gertrude won't let them bring in a clockmaker to try to fix it. Um, it seems to have stopped because there's a lightning bolt that has hit it, again, perhaps mythological, right? Something out of the heavens has stopped this clock. And when she dies, which she does almost in an embrace of the clock, and is witnessed coincidentally by the cousins there on a visit, now young men, um, when she dies, her will gives all of her worldly goods, which turn out to be substantial stocks mm -hmm. and bonds and, and so on, um, real estate, to the narrator, and only the clock to Harry. So, one of the things that's provided for in the will is that Harry and the narrator get their living and tuition paid to function as students at the University of Leiden. We're going back to Holland. And uh, they do. They become, Harry gets himself interested. It's, it's quite humorous. He studies sociology, particularly mm -hmm. 
young female <laughs> Dutch women, um, while our guy uh, finds himself really fascinated by philosophy, particularly a professor von Stopp, which we could read as S-T-O-P, mm-hmm. although it has two P's, as in the clock stopped, who is a Hegelian. And much is made of Hegelian philosophy. I'll mm-hmm. remind people that um, Hegel is best known for dialectics, because Hegelian dialectics is what underlay uh, Marx's historical analysis of the importance of economics in the development of human culture. And Marx picks up Hegel's notion that um, whatever a thing is has within it its own opposite. And when the thing and its opposite interact, they come up with yet something new. So it's thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Mm -hmm. That synthesis then is the thesis, which leads to its own antithesis, and working together dialectically, another synthesis. So there's a, a shuttling back and forth as things and their opposites keep coming up with new possibilities, but moving through time in this dialectical way. Um, and that's the kind of thing that this fellow is talking about. He's discussing the absolutes versus the, uh, the contingents. And what is absolute? What is contingent? And one of the things that fascinates our narrator is the professor's assertion that time is actually not an absolute. It's one of those contingents. After all, we see it as today, as yesterday, today, and tomorrow, but from the standpoint of the absolute, couldn't it just as well be tomorrow, yesterday, and today, or any order that we like? As they are learning about all of this, there comes a moment of um, storm again, and in this moment of storm, the professor, now in the rooms of the, the cousins who are in Leiden, um, is seen, revealed in uh, a stroke of lightning, standing, almost embracing the clock as Great Aunt Gertrude had. And in fact, he looks so much like Great Aunt Gertrude. Mm. He looks so much like Great Aunt Gertrude. And when the, the lightning bolt clears, when the, they regain their sight, without a word being said by the narrator, it turns out they're, they're out in the 16th century. Um, there they are running around during the crucial siege that might have allowed the Catholic Spaniards to conquer the Protestant Low Countries. But there's a key battle in which somehow, perhaps by a miracle, the, 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 the burger and the people of this town have been able to stop the, the Spaniards. And we get involved in watching it go on. And mm-hmm. they can look and they see that there's a hero there. And he looks like 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 Harry. And Harry goes running off. I mean, they see pictures. And anyway, the short of it is we get a little discussion of what we would now call the butterfly effect. Mm-hmm. What would happen? Right? And it's a, it's a lovely passage. It says, if they had not, the, the Dutch had not won, then Catholicism would have come. Freedom of religion would not have come. America might not have been founded, mm-hmm. and so on. So we're all the way down to the present. Our narrator runs off and finds that uh, Harry has met a young woman who looks just like Aunt Gertrude. And her name is Gertrude Vanderwerf. But she's not an old lady. She's 
a woman in her 20s. And she looks just like Aunt Gertrude. And Harry is enamored of her. The short of it is he joins her at a key point, And he is the one who blasts the, the dike so that water will rush in and raise the water level so that the, the relieving fleet can come in and repel the Spanish um, besiegers. We, no one knows in history who he is. No one can tell, but we can figure it out. But while the besiegers are still attacking, there is a line of people on the walls of the dike that are pulling down, throwing down hot tar, hot lead, whatever, and keeping them at bay until they can be repelled. And who is the one leading this attack? Professor von Stopp. Mm-hmm. So at the end, what we realize as our fellow comes back to the present, three days later, three, like Jesus coming out of the cave, I sat with one arm bandaged. He had been hurt during the siege centuries earlier. In my accustomed seat in von Stopp's lecture room, the place beside me was vacant. That is, his cousin never came back. Mm-hmm. We hear much, said the Hegelian professor, reading from a notebook in his usual dry, hurried tone, of the influence of the 16th century upon the 19th. No philosopher, as far as I am aware, has studied the influence of the 19th century upon the 16th. If cause produces effect, does not effect never induce cause? Does the law of heredity, unlike all other laws of this universe of mind and matter, operate in one direction only? Does the descendant owe everything to the ancestor and the ancestor nothing to the descendant? Does destiny, which may seize upon our existence and for its own purposes bear us far into the future, never carry us back into the past? I went back to my rooms in the Brie de Straat, where my only companion was the silent clock. This is, uh, it's a brilliant story. It, it, it's, it reminds me so much of what Heinlein does in his short story, All You Zombies. It's so tight. In fact, I think this is tighter than Heinlein's story, which is, it's a classic. This is, is so brilliant. And w- what I love is that he's tied in U.S. history with uh, an incident in Dutch history, which is real. All the things that are mentioned in here, except for, you know, the, the, the time travel, are actual events in Dutch history. And, and Are you sure about the time travel? <laughs> no, I'm not, but I'm pretty sure. Uh, what, I will, what I will do is I want to read that section you were uh, quoting from, because this is really important. I, I think it really sets up the, the stakes here. Um, so this starts on our ver- our version of the transcribed uh, version. It starts on the bottom of page three and goes to the top of page four. History records the explosion of the mine under the city wall on the last night of the siege. It does not tell the story of the defense or give the defender's name. Yet no man that ever lived had a more tremendous charge than of than fate entrusted to this unknown hero. So the stakes are incredibly high. Uh, we're told. And what's the evidence? Was it chance that sent him to meet the unexpected danger? Uh, destiny, in fact. Consider some of the consequences had he failed. The fall of Leyden would have destroyed the last hope of the Prince of Orange. Doesn't matter to me. I don't know anything about the Prince of Orange. 
and of co- and of the free states. Again, doesn't matter to me. Keep going. The tyranny of Philip would have been re- reestablished. Ah, that's in the past. Doesn't matter. The birth of religious liberty of and of self-government by the people would have been postponed. Who knows how many centuries? Oh, now I'm starting to care a little bit. Who knows that there would or could have been a republic of the United States of America had there been no United Netherlands? Hmm, that seems a bit of a stretch. And yet, we continue, our university, which has given the world Grotius, now Grotius is not well known in the United States as far as I'm aware, Scalinger, uh, Arminius, uh, and Descartes, oh, I heard of him, right, uh, was founded upon this hero's successful defense of the breach. We owe to him our presence here today. Nay, you owe to him your very existence. Your ancestors were of Leyden. Between their lives and the butchers outside the wall, he stood that night. This, this hero that we're told about. Now, well, we dug in, me and my student dug into who all these people are, and it was fascinating. I, you know, I knew about Descartes for a long time, but I didn't, I didn't think about him being at a Dutch university. But if we just um, think back to what we know about what the Netherlands is like, the Netherlands is the place of tolerance. It's the place where people who are not welcome in other countries of Europe can go and be safe. It's a free land. And in fact, this guy Grotius, or Grotius, if you look at his philosophy, it's basically what we would think of as modern day liberalism. It's, it's like live and let live. Other people have strange religious beliefs. Well, how about we just don't kill them for it? I'm <laughs> very reasonable guy. And that's kind of the explanation of why the synthesis of New Amsterdam that was New York that gets taken over by the English and it sort of synthesizes this idea of, you know, let's live and let live and maybe not be hunting witches all the time, you know, and ruining the world all the time. Let's like synthesize that. And then if you think about uh, the enlightenment and all the wonderful things that we think of as modern Western greatness, here is an incident in which the course of events of reality could have been changed if this anonymous hero hadn't have saved the place. And in fact, there's two heroes in the story. The other is, you mentioned him, uh, the burger. There's a famous painting that's re- referred to in this story in which uh, the burger of Leiden points a sword at himself and says, yes, I know you're all starving, but as long as I am mayor, you will. we will not give in. And they're saved by this uh, flood that saves, which is a great historical event, but also a great image, right, of the ships coming in to relieve the the siege. Um, They're saved by him saying, if you need new leadership so much, use this sword, kill me, and eat me. That is actually the father of Gertrude in the story. So whether Gertrude actually exists as a historical figure, I cannot say. But in the story, her father is a historical figure and a savior of the city. Um, the names of the streets in this in the city, the everything is real. The only thing that's not real is this family. And 
in reading this story, I feel like I've like had a whole transformational time travel experience of understanding like a piece of history that I didn't understand before because I'm not from the Netherlands. I've never been there, but somehow I've been educated while reading this story. And then I've made to feel like, you know, there's something like, there's a lot of incest going on sort of in the story, but not really, (laughs) but that's a sort of Heinleinian thing, but it's so, it's so gentle and beautiful. So the, the, the comedy that is the things like the narrator says, I, I always thought that my aunt preferred my cousin Harry to me, but she left me all the good stuff, right? And only left him the clock. But you see the way she relates to the clock. It's, it's very sexual. She's like caressing it, stroking it, whispering to it. And then she dies and the clock is given to her descendant. In fact, they're both her descendants, but he's also not just her descendant. He's also her future husband. <laughs> it's amazing. This story's wonderful. It is. It's lovely. It does raise questions of incest, but but you know, I mean, if you're not supposed to marry your cousin, <laughs> um, but your cousin is. 200 years older than you are yep. is it really a close relationship <laughs> I mean this, this story gets you thinking about all sorts of interesting things oh, yeah. um, and, and one of them that it gets me thinking about uh, if I may point to what you've just said about yourself you didn't understand this you didn't care about that you knew nothing about Grotius or Scaliger you know you're not you've never been to the Netherlands their history didn't seem to have any impact on you and now Having read this story from the past of New York about the past of Holland that is looking to the future, reading this, your past has changed. Mm-hmm. Your past has suddenly become different because it is constructed differently. It depends on a little bit something else that it hadn't depended upon before. In a way, the story answers that question. It's not perhaps that firm events can be changed in the in the present by the future, but our understanding can be changed and when our under, by our imagination of the future and by our changed understanding we will behave differently mm-hmm. and therefore bring about that future that's what utopianism is about warning us away from one future and urging us toward another the stories we tell about the future help create the future in that sense the future can change the present and the period of the 1880s is one where both utopianism and, as you've made clear by finding this, time travel emerge into the popular imagination. The same period at which people are talking about the inevitable march of progress. These stories are culturally so significant, and we see that they worked because they made people do things. They read them. And they found there were many things to do and always more to say. 
Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.